Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online, especially to our North community. So glad that you're meeting in that gym uh, this morning. As I uh, prepared to speak to you this week, I just want to uh, begin by saying that Jude, this rarely read little letter, is small and it's impactful, but where we're about to go today as a family, this little section in Jude is probably one of the top five most difficult passages to preach on probably in the whole Bible. And so no matter who you are this morning, whether you are a skeptic or a seeker wondering and trying to understand or you've been dragged here by someone this morning, (laughs) or you're a brand new Christian who's just met Jesus and all the lights have turned on for you, or you're a long-term Christian, no matter who you are, and like we say all the time, you're most welcome, I want everyone just to take a moment to pray a simple prayer. I'd just like you to say, Jesus, would I actually hear you? Because this little section today is very countercultural, actually quite offensive in our culture, but deeper than that, it's complex. So could you just, everyone close their eyes, all of you in the north, anyone watching online, and like I say, if you're driving, don't close your eyes, but <laughs> just pray, Jesus, speak to me. Amen. Let me start where I did last week. Jude wrote this little book, and many of us didn't know that Jude was Jesus' half-brother, He was also the brother of James. And he started this mini letter by saying these hope-filled, identity-giving truths. He starts with the beauty of the gospel, the, the profound work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And he summarizes all that profound work basically in a few sentences. He says, to those who have been called and those who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And here are the words I used last week. Let me use them again. Those words to a Christian, called and loved and kept, are so important to us because they all point to the good news, the great news of Christianity. God calls us and He loves us and Jesus keeps us. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, overcomes everything between us and His Father. Jesus is the only one who has dealt with sin because He's the only one without sin. He's the only one who's overcome death because He's the only one who went through death and came back from the other side and tells us what actually took place and what will take place. He's the only one that has the power, the ability, the Holy the love to actually be our Savior and deal with our rescue. He's the only one that's overcome all our enemies, and He even has confronted and overcome our own blindness, spiritual death, and selfish inclinations. And like I said, if that is not amazing enough and beautiful enough, there's more. He then comes with all of that power and beauty and love and holiness and says, you do not need to earn this. You do not need to work for love. I choose to give all that I have done on your behalf back to you as a gift. The good news is that Jesus Christ lived a life we were supposed to live and did not live. Jesus died a death we deserve. Jesus Christ rose again physically and rescues us and gives it to us as gift. 
And Jude basically says to his original audience, multiple churches, not just one, he says, I believe in the good news. I believe in what my stepbrother did. I believe this happened to me. This has happened to many of you as my readers. And many of us gathered today in this church, in this forum, 2,000 years later, this is our story too. But then Jude, while he was wanting to write a whole letter on the beautiful gospel, the common salvation we share, he suddenly stopped and said, I have to throw that letter out and write another letter because now there is a grave threat. There is a crisis in the church that I must address. I need to face this down. He says, whether you know it or not, whether you understand it or not, false teachers are now among you. I remember I shared this story before when I was 18 or 19. I was at a youth retreat up in Beaverton, Fair Havens, the mighty place. And as I was driving back in mid-February, in my parents' car, I was going the speed limit. It was a bad day. There had been a huge storm. And I remember turning around Blackwater. And as I was turning the corner on that 1248 highway, I hit black ice. And I remember instantaneously I knew I was in trouble. Because I felt the car lurch into oncoming traffic and there was nothing I could do. And though it happened only probably in seconds, to me it felt like an eternity. It's like everything slowed down as my car turned and as I started looking, because the passenger side was now facing oncoming traffic, and there I was hit by a car at 70 kilometers per hour. Three 360s into a swamp. I was 70 pounds heavier than I am now, and so I went fully into the steering wheel, bent it in half, lunged back. My chair collapsed. I actually, when I came to, was lying down. And the joke last time I shared, which isn't a joke but is a joke, is there was a thousand-page systematic theology textbook in the back that went up and smashed the back window. If it had come forward, it would have killed me, but that would be appropriate for me, dying by a theological textbook. (laughs) I went to heaven with the Baptists in the head. It was a terrible, terrible moment. But why I share it is this. I literally saw this coming, and all of time stopped. It's like Jude is watching this terrible, eternally damning accident coming. But unlike me, he has the ability to change the direction before it is too late. And so he begins to say that we have a problem He says in verse 4, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have now secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only King and Lord. He says that these pastors, these priests, these elders, these these deacons, these teachers have secretly slipped into the church. They have wormed their way into the wood. Now, like I shared last week, that phrase, secretly slipped in, is not just neutral. It was used by narrative people, by fable writers by people who wrote novels 2,000 plus years ago. And the idea was that if you want to overcome a country, the enemy sends in good-looking key people from that country into the country they want to invade. They get governmental positions and places of authority over a lifetime, like sleeper cells, and they change the laws from good to bad so the country is weak. So when the invasion comes in a long time, then the country will not be able to push it back. And Jude says, what is so dangerous about these false teachers is they are more seductive than most. See, these godly men, these godless men, are not teaching things like this. 
They're not saying that there are many gods, or they're not saying that Jesus isn't God in flesh, or they're not denying the virgin birth, or they're not even in some points questioning what the Bible says in many ways. Actually, deeper than that, they're not even saying you need to add things to get saved. None of that's on the table. It's more subtle and more seductive and more dangerous. These false teachers are saying that they have changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. They have perverted, they have altered the state of grace. They have started to teach Christians these words. And I want to remind everyone as I get going today, this is to Christians. They have said that you can live your life any way you want because you have now experienced the grace of God. Remember the story I told last week? Do you remember when you graduated and you got your license for the first time, your G? And I jokingly said, can you imagine once you passed your driving license exam, the person says, congratulations, you've passed, here's your license, and then said these words to you. So now you've learned all the rules of the road, and you know how to drive, and you know how to parallel park. You can do anything you want. So go ahead, hit pedestrians. That's okay. 401, 190, it's real fun. I recommend it. How do you want to drive? Though you know the law, you can break the law because now you have your license. These teachers come along and they say that trespass is okay. You have freedom to, you have the right to do what you want, when you want, how you want. Why? Oh, sin is wrong, but don't worry. Jesus has covered the sin, and since Jesus has covered the sin, you now can live a life as you see fit. These Christian false teachers twist God's free forgiveness in Jesus to do what you want. So they start teaching from pulpits and in connect groups, God's forgiveness is free. There is no penalty. And this is how they deny the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. How? They start teaching that immorality is fine. Now, last week I said to all of you, I'm hoping someone's asking what immorality is. And I said, well, immorality comes from words like licentiousness and unrestrained vice and reckless self-indulgence. And you say back to me, John, it sounds like Shakespeare. I still don't have a clue what that means. Well, I say, okay, well, actually, if you go to any Bible dictionary and look up this word, especially even in 2 Peter 2, Peter actually uses this very word. It has a very specific dictionary meaning. Now, immorality in the Bible has three directions. It can mean greed. Me, 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 money, money, money at the expense of others. Idolatry, I will not worship the true living God, I will worship another God. Or it can mean sexual immorality. Now for Jude, he is writing on the sexual side of this conversation. The phrase in the Bible is called lustful passions, longing after what is forbidden. Now if you read the Bible from beginning to end, there is a unified biblical worldview connected to sex. Sex is from God. God invented it. He thought it up. He thinks it's great. He gave it to us. If it's done in the right context, it can be fun. It's for pleasure. It's for procreation. It is for love, and it's amazing. But like I shared last week, God says that all of his creation, including sexuality and sex, is like a mighty river, but God has placed riverbanks, and when the river overfloods or floods over the riverbanks, it causes damage. Now, for Jude... And remember who Jude is. He's an Orthodox Jew who's embraced Jesus the Messiah. And for Peter, any sexual act outside of marriage as formed by God in Genesis is called, in the dictionary, immorality. Actually, if you read the Bible at face value, Moses, Jesus, Paul, all the biblical writers say that the sexual starting point and the sexual ending point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. 
That is God's uh, gift. That is God's design. That is God's command. That is God's limit. And when we step out of that, knowingly or not, the Bible calls that action sin. Now, these teachers have come along and said this, Jesus is great, check. Jesus is the Son of God, correct. Jesus died for your sins, that's right. Jesus has given us grace, yes. Jesus took the the bullet called God the Father's wrath, yes. And then they'd say, again, from a pulpit like this or in a connect group, so since all of that that is true, Jesus is also okay with what you want to do sexually because God is love. And since God is love, he would never dare say to anyone, no. Now, I said this last week. Have you heard this anywhere before? I hear it everywhere. And this is where the beauty of the gospel becomes broken. By preaching a Christian life without lordship, they teach grace without life change. And so this is how these pastors deny the sovereignty of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. They have right theology, but they misapply the results of God's work through Jesus. Now, that's where we ended last week. And for some of you, for all of us, it was a fork in the road. Because we began to realize that what we live and what our culture says and what many of us even believe here is in contradiction to what Jude is teaching. And if that wasn't enough of a fork in the road, now we actually come to the real crux of the matter. Jude says these words as you keep reading this little letter. Oh, we've been here before, he says. Oh, oh, we've seen this in holy history before as God's people. He said to his original audience, so churches that I'm writing to, let me write you and point you back to the Old Testament to show you what these style of teachers have done in the past. Jude would say, let's look at these examples together and you will see that these so-called church teachers and leaders are heading towards judgment and I know they're heading towards judgment because this is how God has always dealt with false teachers in the past. These people you read about in the past are now in the present. They just have different names and look different, but they're exactly the same. So Jude says, okay, I want to point to not one, not two, but three different examples in the Old Testament. Now why, this is critical, if you're note-taking, you're thinking, why does Jude point to the Old Testament? Because for Jude and for Christians, the written Word of God is the final authority for faith, life, and practice. Jesus taught it too. He used the Scriptures as authority. So Jude says, okay, example one. He says, you want to understand how seductive and dangerous this is? He says, example one is God's people after the Exodus. He says, though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that God at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those that did not believe. Now he says, do you remember the story? He says, 400 plus years, God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They cry out for deliverance. God sends Moses, then Aaron, and they show up, and God begins to rescue his people. How does he do it? Not one, not two, not five, but ten plagues. Pharaoh is overcome. The gods of Egypt are overcome. Then they leave, and the Red Sea is split. Then they walk into the wilderness. They get bread from heaven every single day, water from rocks, and here's what I preached a few weeks ago. And do not forget this. God is physically present, can be seen by the people. He is a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud by day. 
And so he comes and does all these miracles and answers their very prayers and he rescues them. And then when they're wandering in the wilderness, God speaks to his people. He preaches to his people and says, amazing good news. I have given you a promised land. All you must do is walk into it and it's yours. So God has given his people the word of God. He says, all you need to do is obey the word of God and you will be fulfilled. And Jude says, what did God's people do? They heard God's word. They had God's word. They said no to God's word. Because when they came to the promised land, they decided that God could not be trusted in the end. Jude says, do you remember the result? He says, oh, just read Numbers 14. As for you, Your bodies will fall in the wilderness, people, my people, my children, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. And so that generation died. So here's Jude's point. The people of God who had been rescued by God, who had God's presence, who had seen the miracles of God and the profound work of God, had God's presence and his word, and yet they did not believe God's word. Jude says, do you see the connection? These false teachers have God's word, but they do not believe God's word. They're teaching you that you can actually break God's word and there will be no consequences. And Jude says, have you read your Bible lately? He says, okay, that's example one. He says, here's example two. Let's talk about the great battle that happened in heaven between Satan and God. He says, oh, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwellings, these he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for the, great, for the judgment on the great day. Now, if you read your whole Bible, this is called the sin of autonomy. In Revelation 12, it says that one-third of the angels joined Satan and rebelled against God, and they're overcome and thrown out of heaven. But here's the question you need to struggle with this morning. Why did Satan and one-third of the angels that knew God and loved God suddenly rebel? Was God evil? Was he unjust? Was he a dictator? Was he an abusing dad? Was he not fair? No. Satan rebelled for one reason. He wanted to be God, period. They rejected God's authority and thought autonomy was better. These angels, you think about this, knew God in a way none of us have known. They were actually in his literal presence. But they wanted something that they were never supposed to have. They crossed the boundaries there. Everyone ready? Write this down. Their creator had set out. All demons war against God. They're thrown out of heaven. They'll be judged. And Jude says this. God had given them, notice the language, positions, proper dominion, place. What was their sin? Roaring against God? Not just that. They decided that the limits that God had given them were too restricting and God needed to be taken out because they should have the final say, not God. Let me bring this home. Last week I was in between meetings, or two weeks ago, between meetings and sermon prep and life. And, and sometimes to clear my head, I walk around. Well, I used to walk around the building. I sort of do weird things now because you can't walk around. And I said, oh, you know, I'm very excited what's happening here in our building at the Ajax site. I'm going to go in and see how construction's going. I wasn't going to go through the whole thing. I just wanted to see one little section. And so I walked through a little door, and I wasn't even planning to go in very far. I was just observing a future classroom. And as I was standing there, the foreman came up to me, and he said, excuse me. 
said, yes. He said, um, you can't be here. He said, you do not have the right hat and the right shoes. Now, inside of that moment, everything in me was not Christian or pastoral. <laughs> my human reaction was, do you know who I am? And by the way, me and a bunch of my friends get a lot of money for this, and we're paying your bills. No, really. So take a hike in my head. Not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. But I stopped, and I said, you're right. Now, that is so important this morning, because the foreman was kind but direct, and he had every right to remove me. But my reaction showed me I don't like being told what to do, so screw you. Now, this is so critical as we go through this, because at any moment when you start feeling that while I'm preaching, you know you have a rebellion problem. Because the foreman had the right and the law, and he was trying to protect me. And autonomy says, I have the final say, no matter who you are. He says, Jude is saying, number one, the first example, you cross God's word, you reject God's word. Example two, you have God set creation, set boundaries, and now you say those boundaries are wrong. So when you reject God's boundaries, you reject God himself. Now Jude says, okay, example three is really important. I actually want to talk to you about what the false teachers are literally teaching. He says in verse 7, In similar ways, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, let's just have an honest conversation about this this morning. Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities destroyed by God, but they were destroyed for many reasons, not just sexual morality. If you read the book of Ezekiel, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 49, it says this, And now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They never helped the poor or needy. They were haunty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you can see. So remember this. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? According to the Scriptures, they were arrogant. They had a luxurious lifestyle to the point they were basically gluttonizing themselves. They hated the poor. They never helped anyone else. They were inward, never outward, and they abuse the poor. But there's more than that. Jude also says, and so does Ezekiel, what he calls detestable things, there is a sexual side of the problem. Now let me just read the story to you in Genesis 19.1. God says two, sends two angels to prepare for judgment. The two angels arrive at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside from your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. By the way, this is classic Middle Eastern hospitality. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did, not go, they did go with him and they entered his house. As he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, they ate. And before they went to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Now, sexual immorality and perversion is mentioned in Jude as what the false teachers were focusing on and were preaching God would be okay with. Now, let me say this again. Jude is an Orthodox Jew and the author of Genesis and Christianity for 2,000 years have had a very clear view on this. Number one, adultery is wrong. Many of these men are married. 
And so they're going to commit adultery. Many of these men are not married. They're about to commit what they call fornication in the Bible. This is wrong. Number three, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation says homosexual orientation is not a sin, never should be a sin, nor should anyone be persecuted, hurt, or victimized by that. But the Bible is explicit that homosexual activity is a sin. And so Jude points to this and says, this has happened before. But not only does he say this, here's the second thing a lot of us miss as moderns. The two people that are in the house are angels. And so wanting to have sexual contact with angels is wrong. Just read Genesis 6. Oh, and the third thing is this is about sexual assault, which is always wrong. Now, is it saying those three things are equal? No. But here's the point for Jude. God has given boundaries as creator, and he has placed these boundaries because he has the right to do it because he is the creator. And in Sodom, the people were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, hated the poor, and didn't help the needy, and they crossed lines sexually in multiple directions. They wanted to go beyond, ready, the banks of the river that God had set out. So Jude comes along and says, they serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. He's talking about the false teachers. He says, these teachers that are teaching this to you are on their way to hell. And if you're like, oh my goodness, John, you're like offending me every three seconds. Just remember that the scriptures are saying this, not me. And Jesus in Mark 9 is explicit that hell is real. So Jude says, now thinking back to the false teachers he's facing in his moment, In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. Well, how do they pollute their own bodies? They're doing sexual things God says no to, and they defy authority. How do they defy authority? Because their teaching in life says you are allowed to reject the authority of the Bible and the authority of Jesus Christ because you can break God's law and be okay. And then he says the weirdest thing ever, and they are slandering, they're mocking angels. And you're like, John, I'm lost. How are they mocking angels? Well, here's how they're mocking angels. Because since they're teaching that you can defy God's law, they're slanting angels because in the Bible it says that much of the Bible was mediated, brought to, brought to human beings from God by angels. And so thus, when you actually reject this, you mock angels. Hebrews 2.2, for if the message spoken by angels was binding, every violation of disobedience received, it's just punishment. Well, Jude's not done. I was hoping he would be, but he wasn't. He now talks about the death of Moses. He says in verse 9, But even Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil over the body of Moses, did not dare even bring a slanderous accusation against him. He said, The Lord rebuke you. Now you're like, Jude, where are you going? I'm lost, and I'm reading the Bible. I can't even find that in the Bible. You're right, you can't. This is actually out of a book called The Assumption of Moses. This is an apocryphal Jewish book. That was used for years by Christians. Clement, Origen, Didymus, all church fathers make reference to it. Many Jews and early Christians considered it almost Scripture or Scripture itself. Now we've got to ask ourselves the question because we're all lost. Well, why in the world is Lucifer fighting with Michael over Moses' corpse and why does it matter connected to false teaching? Well, one person said that actually the reason why Lucifer is debating with Michael is he's the accuser and he's saying Moses is a murderer and he's mine. Other people said, no, no, that's not what's going on. Here's why there's a fight over his body. It's because Jesus hasn't come and died yet and broken Satan's back. So Satan's still the God of this world and owns all material things. So he has the right to demand everybody. You say, John, what's the answer? And I say to you, I have no clue at all. 
But that's not why Jude is pointing it out. This is what he's talking about. Please lean in. Michael serves as a prime example of an angel or a being that will not violate God's given laws and boundaries. I love what Wayne Grudem said. The reference to Michael is simply to show that the greatest angelic creature ever created, no matter how powerful, did not presume to go beyond the limits of the authority that God had given him. These false teachers, however, have far overstepped their bounds and they show their foolishness when they revile whatever they do not understand. Jude says, be like the archangel Michael, live under God's authority, and when you do, you will not fall into the temptation or trap of immorality. Now, he keeps speaking about these false teachers, these false pastors, yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals. They are the very things that destroy them. He says, basically, let me break it down like this. Unrestrained liberty is not Christian. It might be culturally, culturally right, but it's not Christian. And what he's making a reference to basically is this. When Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, all was right. And then Satan came in and said, you cannot trust your creator. He is dangerous, trustworthy. He's holding things back. And the lines he has placed in the sand not to walk over are wrong. You need to be like God too. And so these teachers are offering, even in a more perverted way, under the grace of Jesus, the original lie of Satan. Now Jude says to the original audience, and if he was here today, us, you're not convinced yet? You're not concerned? You don't think all of this has eternal implications? He says, okay, I'm going to give you three more examples from the Old Testament. You're like, really? It's like, yep. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them. This is serious. This is disaster. They're heading towards judgment. This is going to happen. They're like Cain. Well, who's Cain? He's one of Adam and Eve's original kids. Yes. Yes, he's famous because he commits the very first violent act in history. He murders his brother. But see, that's not why Jude points this out. He doesn't even bring up the murder. Here's what Jude is actually pointing to. Before Cain murdered Abel in a rage, God preached to Cain. God spoke directly to Cain and gave Cain his word and told him where the boundaries were. Do you remember the story in Genesis 3-3, one of the very first worship services ever recorded in history? In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil as an offering to God. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some from, from the firstborn of his flock. Now the Lord looked on favor with Abel in his offering, but in Cain in his offering, he did not look on with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? See, God is speaking directly, personally, his word. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, Cain, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you, Cain, must rule over your sin. Here's what Judah is saying again. Cain had God's word. Cain rejected God's word, and the implications were devastating. He says, next example, these teachers are like Balaam. You're saying, who's Balaam? Balaam was a teacher in God's people. Balaam was a respected leader in God's people. Halfway through his career, a foreign king who hated the Jews wanted to hire him to use occultic power to curse his own people. 
Now, that's not why actually Jude brings him up. It's deeper than that. See, if you read Numbers and the books surrounding it carefully, you'll find out that actually Balaam became a false teacher, and here's what he started teaching God's people. You should be involved in sexual orgies, and God will be okay with that. And oh, by the way, it's okay to marry foreign women if you're a Jewish guy, even though they worship other gods. God's going to be okay with that. Even though God has said no, I say yes. And if you read Numbers 25, you will see what happens right after Balaam's teaching. While Israel was staying in Shittim, you've got to say that word very carefully in a North American pamphlet, the men began to indulge in oh, sexual immorality, same phrase, with Moabite women, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down to their gods. And Israel yoked themselves, married themselves to another god, Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Jude says, do you remember, church? God said no to worshiping other gods. They did it. Balaam said you can actually have sex with people and there's no consequences. Do you remember? He said you could even marry people who are not actually of your faith and it's fine. These false teachers say it's okay to break God's word around marriage, sexual acts, and worshiping other God, but the story of the Old Testament tells us it is never okay for God's people to do this. He says last example is Korah's rebellion. And this one, by the way, is one of the most needed ones in the North American church. Korah was a great leader in God's people that was in the wilderness wanderings after Egypt. And he actually led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. It says this in number 16 uh, two, Korah rose up against Moses and with him 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed as members of the council. This is sedition and rebellion against Moses. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them. The Lord is with them too, Moses. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? Now watch this. Do you see this? Korah says this. We all know God too, Moses. And we all walk with God too. And we're His children too. Who the heaven do you think you are to tell us what to do? We're all priests. We all know God. Who put you above us? And see, this is one of the greatest misunderstandings. Oh, yes, all as Christians, we all have access to God, but there are leaders that God appoints over us. All of us have to be led by leaders. And Korah's sin is this. He rebels against God-appointed leadership and God-appointed word. And Jude is basically saying to the audience, these false teachers are rebelling against myself, that's Jude, and other leaders who are truly given by God, and they are telling you to break His Word. He ends by saying, these people are blemishes at your communion table, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, their clouds without rain, blowing along by the wind, autumn trees, fruit that are without fruit and uprooted, twice dead, their waves, wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Oh. He says, there's stains and blemishes in your church. And if you read the ESV and other translations, I love how they say it. It actually says, they are like hidden rocks and reefs. 
and you are like a boat, and you do not see them, and you're about to crash up against them, and they're about to lose eternal life, and you're going to be shipwrecked in your faith. They, they promise the things of God, but they never deliver. There are clouds, there's never rain. There are trees, there's never fruit. They look alive, but actually they're not just once dead, they're twice dead. They're eternally damned. And then he quotes Enoch, actually the book of First Enoch, another book not found in the Scriptures. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these people. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them and all of their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all of their defiant ungodly and all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for their own advantage. Jude simply says this judgment is real. Judgment is coming. Judgment cannot be avoided. And Jude, in no uncertain terms, says this is what's going to happen to these teachers unless they repent. Why is this so important? Remember last week I started by saying that we had spent three weeks talking about soul care and why we need to really do that really well as a church? And then I started last week by saying, well, if the last three weeks are about soul care, the next three weeks are about theological care. And you notice what Jude does? Let me do this again. Let me demonstrate this physically if the camera can follow me. See, only when you know the darkness you've been in And only when you know the God the Father's election in your life and Jesus' work on the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit moves you into life will you ever be able to have this conversation about why the rest of this is wrong. Because for we who are Christians, we have encountered love that is so profound and so beautiful and so consuming and so life-giving. It is a picture that is not just metaphor. It is so true. We have found that Jesus is worth everything. Our worship, So we would be willing to give up anything and we would be willing to obey him in the drop of a dime because we know he is love and he's good and he's holy. That's why Jude starts his book by saying, I am a slave to my brother because his love is good. But only when you see where you've come from and where you are now would you even be willing to say, I will not cross boundaries anymore. To the rest of the world, this is arrogant and hateful. For a Christian, this is beauty because this is where freedom is at. Now, usually when I preach, I give two or three or four or five different directions you can take this. Only one today, and then I'm done. I started my message by saying to all of us that Jude will produce a fork on the road for us. And now we've arrived at it. It says in the Psalms, thinking about the Exodus account. Please listen. Do not harden your hearts when the Word of God is spoken to you. If you claim to be a Christian here this morning, and this is only directed to Christians, that is, you claim that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you've declared Him as Savior and Lord, then the reality of that is that He has the right to tell you what to do because He is Lord. His word is the ultimate and final say about our faith, how we get saved, how we live our life, and what we practice with sex, money, and power. Notice these Christian, in parenthesis, false teachers come and say that you can reject God's word, you, 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 you can do this and you'll be okay. They say you can reject God's authority, 
They say that when God as creator and also as the lover of your soul says, this is a line, do not cross it. They say to you, God has no right to tell you where the boundaries are. That's not true. I want to remind you this morning, Jesus isn't just love. Jesus is holy love. Unconditional love means that all people are welcome back to the table to meet God personally. But it does not mean unconditional acceptance of what we do or what we want. God's Word says explicitly, as Christians, we are called to radical generosity, period. We are called to love the poor and fight for them, period. We must not be arrogant, period. We must be generous, period. We must uh, engage and fight in a broken world for justice, period. But we also must obey the Bible sexually, period. We must obey God's authority, God's Word, because God's Word, the author of God's Word is the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Christ, and Christ is the author of this book because this book is God the Father's will. And the cross in the road, the fork in the road is this, and this is where I end. Every single one of us in this room must decide Will I truly say that there is freedom in the Lordship of Jesus? Do I truly believe that the love that we sing about and the grace we we relish is actually so much more powerful and beautiful I'd be willing to give up what I love or want or desire? Is that more beautiful than this? And are all of us willing to bow the knee now before we have to do it later when it's too late? And say, yes, Jesus, you are my friend and you are my brother, but you are also my king and my Lord. And how dare I ever tell you, you have no right to tell me anything. In other words, will you respond to God like I responded to the foreman? Or will you respond to God like a person who really loves the relationship? You know, I, we've been praying for years for revival and seeing large spits and spats of it. But the very first time that Dave and I knelt together and truly got definition of God's work among us in this season, it was always connected to the Lordship of Jesus. And so our simple prayer has to be, Lord, what do you want us to do? So I'm not expecting everything to be resolved today. This is an invitation for a very serious conversation, not only among each other, but with Jesus himself. So why don't we just pray, and then we're going to sing a song actually in both of our locations that I think properly reflects our profound need for Jesus in this moment. So would you uh, just pray with me, whoever you are, wherever you are. Lord, we as Christians thank you that you're love and that you aren't far away and you're not distant and you don't hide yourself from us. And thank you for grace and mercy and taking our iniquity, all our sin on, on your body for us, Jesus. Thank you. But it's a different conversation today for many of us. Many of us have done church for a long time and heard about grace and love grace and see how different that makes us from every other movement. But as we've read through your stepbrother's words today, many of us are now realizing that we're actually in rebellion against God's laws and standards of holiness. So now, Jesus, in me and in this church, start sorting this out. 
Speak. I mean, this is my request. Speak. Speak to people. Very directly. Begin in a non-condemning but a very convicting, convicting way to show us every place where we have told you you have no right to tell us what to do or how we've permitted things. I pray for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and King, to grow exponentially in C4. Because the Bible says where Jesus is found in His fullness, there is real freedom. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.